So we begin praising by praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, we send peace and blessings upon our beloved messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, upon his uh, family, his companions, those who follow them until the end of time. This week we start actually three courses. Tuesdays we have this class, uh, Getting It Right, and, and this is the second component uh, of the series that we started. So last semester we took like a primer on theology uh, and went through it. And then this semester, as well as probably the next and throughout the summer, uh, we'll be going through this text probably for a year. I would assume it'll take about a year to finish it. Um, and, then, and then on uh, Wednesdays, every other Wednesday, uh, we have a class on usul al-fiqh, which is like really very important, especially in, in times like this where, you know, we've gone from modernity, which is the absolute subject now, to postmodernity, which is the absolute object. And it's hard sometimes to find your bearings. Um, and then you couple that with like Islamophobia, um, sexism, racism. It's a lot of stuff to deal with. And it can move us in ways that's important. Like it's important that we're moved. Um, but we want to make sure that we're rooted um, in our tradition. At the same time, we may run into interpretations that throw us off. Uh, we're not really sure... Um, how valid those interpretations may be, um, are they flexible or not? So, like Usul al-Fiqh really provides like the lenses, the foundational lenses for interpretation, and that will be at ten. Then, of course, because engineering would be kind of the ideal place to talk about the engineering and construction construction of uh, Islamic thought and law. And then on Thursdays we have, uh, I'm sure there'll be a lot more people here because it's talking about jinn. Um, so we'll be talking about reflections on, on the 72nd chapter of the Qur'an. And then on Wednesdays, I know most people that come to this are like working and like you have um, other responsibilities, but we do have open reading sessions for everybody interested uh, from 1 to 6. I'm just in the musalla um, and offering people different texts they can read from. Uh, it's best if it's like a group of like 3 to 6 people, to be honest with you. Um, so alhamdulillah, and then we're going to start probably like monthly, like a qiyam, like, you know, once a month, like praying qiyam here. It won't be too late at night because this place closes. And then as the weather gets warmer, we'll do like probably once a month as well, like a weekend, like vicar in the morning somewhere in a park, uh, breakfast and ball or whatever, breakfast and some kind of community-based um, uh, exercise, inshallah. So uh, last, last semester we went over like the foundations of what we should believe in a very kind of simple way. Um, and we said that the foundations of our, our faith are really based on four sciences, right? Uh, the, the aspects of faith, and then the aspects of practice, like things we have to do, things we shouldn't do, that's fiqh. Um, and then three sciences, I'm sorry. And the third is dealing with character and the science of the heart, ihsan. And those three are found, of course, in the famous prophetic narration of our beloved messenger. Um, when Gabriel came to him, Angel Gabriel came to him and asked him these three questions. 
about faith, practice, and ifsen. So we're going to be reading from a book that's written by really a 6th century giant um, who took it from another great scholar, um, which is called Minhaj al-Qasidin al sadiqin which is the methodology of the people who are sincere or trying to be sincere. <clears throat> and then also what will benefit people who are truthful. And Imam Ibn Jawzi, uh, he was from Baghdad. He was a great Hanbali scholar. Uh, you can read a lot about him. He was a very influential person. He, uh, he would give like Friday sermons and there would be thousands of people. Um, he's kind of like, like an Omar Suleiman of his era. I don't know how to explain it, like a Sheikh Hamza, uh, like someone who's like very iconic, um, a public intellectual, but also like a renowned intellect amongst academics. So he, he kind of moves between two squares. You could say that he's like, um, like Neil deGrasse Tyson, and then he's like Cornell West. That may be like a good way to describe him. Like he, he, he could like hang in both situations. And that was make, that's what makes him actually very unique um, because he exists in a time where you start to see divide between the scholars and the masses. And, and that divide today is even more apparent. Like sometimes you may feel really frustrated um, that you don't have access or that you just don't understand sometimes what religious people are talking about. And on the other end, you find a religious uh, community, scholars who are uh, very gifted Islamically, but culturally may be very deficient. Um, I remember, and this is not to say that all of them are like that because this is an assumption of, of the post-Enlightenment era, and we have to be very careful because our brains have been soaked in white supremacy. And one of the outcomes of white supremacy is to question your own religion in the way that that experience questions Christianity. And if you go on my Twitter account last night, I had to take someone outside and basically beat them down with love and mercy because, you know, they were making assumptions about our religion uh, me as a white person, uh, I recognized where it was coming from, um, and that's problematic. doesn't mean that our religion and our leadership and scholars and laity don't have issues, but we need to be very careful that we're not just regurgitating the assumptions of the modern world and then re-projecting that onto Islam, whereas Islam's historical experience is very different. So last night the person said, yeah, just like Christianity, all Muslim scholars were like sucking up to the the rulers. So I said to them, well, you know, if you take the ten major imams of Qiraat, five of them were slaves. Who the heck were they sucking up to? Um, who were actually freed by their teachers uh, and then became the imams of Quran. One of them, uh, Imam Asim, was blind. So who the heck was he sucking up to? I mean, he was blind in the second century after Hijri, a slave, so he didn't have a lot of political agency, is the point I'm trying to make here. Um, and then the person basically deleted their tweet. So, which is not good either, because I want to teach people, like, I want to hurt people or like, take them to task, but we need to be very careful. So, even though Josie exists in a time where this division starts um, largely because of literacy, like in those days, people that were literate were considered lucky um, because you didn't have mass literacy, you had a lot of memorization. Um, so he, he kind of comes at an important time. The Abbasid period also is a time where the family of the Prophet are being massacred. Uh, we believe this is Sunnis, it's not just a Shiite thing. Uh, there's this massive kind of genocide of Ahl al-Bayt that happened. And then there was a lot of opulence. 
So Al-Ghazali, who wrote the original book, uh, The Revival of Religious Sciences, wrote that book for the ulama. And that's something that people really need to appreciate. He wrote this book as kind of a reminder to the scholars to like get yourself together. Stop tripping. Uh, Ibn al-Jawzi comes after him, uh, critically edits his text, because Ibn al-Jawzi is a traditionalist. He's very gifted in the science of prophetic traditions, whereas Ghazali, he wasn't. Um, it doesn't take anything away from anybody. It's just the reality. Um, and then he also kind of reformats the book to also speak to the masses, if that makes sense. And then after Ibn al-Jawzi came, Imam al-Maqdisi from Palestine, um, who does more to it than what uh, Ibn al-Jawzi did. Rahimahullahu uh, ta'ala, may I bless all of them. So it's a, a time of tremendous opulence. To live in Baghdad is like living in Manhattan. Um, and, and you find that Al-Ghazali reacts to his condition. You can never read a classical text without appreciating the historical reality of that text. What was going on in that situation. Ghazali relaxed to the, reacts to the opulence of the scholars, uh, who he felt many of them were now because of the patronage of the government. Um, some of them were being compromised. He was worried about that. Al-Ghazali, when he wrote the Ihya, he was, just had been kind of like the rector of what would be considered like Harvard or Oxford. He has this kind of spiritual epiphany, and he realizes that like knowledge is, people are just like arguing all the time, and fighting, and like jockeying for position, and it's not really about serving. So he, he kind of has this like Pauline epiphany, man, and he goes and lives in Masjid Al-Aqsa for 11 years. And he just does khilwa, he just isolates himself. Um, Ibn al-Jawzi has issues with that, by the way. Right? Ibn al-Jawzi is like, some of the things that al-Ghazali did were specific to him, but not necessarily good for everybody. Um, then Ibn al-Jawzi comes also in that similar time period, and again, his focus, very similar to al-Ghazali, is like opulence, um, narcissism, hubris, um, losing a sense of morality, a very, sh a very shallow view of religion, uh, very similar to kind of where we are uh, in some ways now uh, in the world, in the monoculture through globalization that's really made everyone want to be fly and wear Yeezys. Um, his approach is to kind of bring some discipline to that. So it's a really, really nice book, and he actually wrote the book uh, as a response to the needs of his students. And again, that speaks to his being in touch with the ground level, like understanding the needs of people. So we'll go through this text, inshallah. Uh, hopefully, uh, now that we have a new staff member joining us, because Verenda decided to dip to Paris, <laughs> who can blame her? Um, we'll have notes for you like every week, so like you'll be able to follow. Because even though Josie's book isn't translated. I plan to do that today, but uh, alas, uh, I left my computer at the house. So I just had to print it out and, and take some notes for you. We're not going to read like every little thing in the book because that would take us like three or four years to finish. So we're going to kind of go through it as a summary um, and focus really on two parts of the text. Al-Muhlikat, Umunjiyat, those destructive qualities of the heart and those qualities that are good for the heart, things like we should work on. right? So things we should be aware of, we should run like a virus protection on our soul. Um, and then secondly, things that we should try to focus on that we may already have, alhamdulillah, in our lives, 
but just trying to develop them, enhance them, contextualize them is very important, uh, and so on and so forth. So he begins his book after like a pretty lengthy introduction. He talks about the Ihya, he defends Al-Ghazali because Imam Al-Ghazali, like any great intellectual, any great thinker, you know, if you want to make people hate you, make them think, right? Um, was attacked. You know, the Malikis and the Andalus like, were burying, burning his books um, in Spain. Uh, Spain wasn't this, people like try to like think of Spain as like being awesome and stuff. Like, that's why it's still here. Because <laughs> it was so awesome, right? It wasn't awesome. There was a lot of serious issues happening in Spain. And one of them was a really, really strong intolerance by the Sufis of all people. And the Ash'aris, not the Salafis, not the Hanbalis, but the Maliki, Ash'ari um, folks in Andalus. Again, that's not an attack on anyone now. That's just a historical reality. It's there for the historical record. Like, we're in an academy. We're not, like, you know, in the streets, like, fighting, like, McGregor and Mayweather or something. Like, so, Ibn Josie defends him and says, Maftara, like, he didn't relate narrations and strange stories because he purposely meant to do it. He did it because that was the information that he received. And Imam al-Ghazali in the Ihya, by the way, what we would consider now plagiarism, um, in those days wasn't plagiarism, most of the Ihya, a large percentage of it, is taken verbatim by someone who came before him, who is Abu al-Harith al-Muhasibi. Uh, so Ibn al-Jawzi comes, as any critical academic would do, right? The book is subjected to peer review. And even though Josie sifts through it, takes out some of the like complex philosophical arguments, the attacks on the Greeks, um, sex that no longer exist, some of the strange stories, some of the weak narrations, and really presents a very nice text uh, in, in many ways to honor uh, Imam uh, al-Ghazali, rahimahullah. It's very important to note this, that most of the great scholars that we love now faced a lot of garbage during their time. It wasn't like they were like, yeah, we love you. Like, no, like, again, these are people who their thoughts were so profound um, that they created a lot, of, a lot of agitation. And they rocked the boat, if you will, in certain ways. But they did so relying on um, the foundations of our religion. So Ibn Jawzi, he says very beautifully to his student, he says, and I'm just going to read in the Arabic tonight, like next week, tonight might be kind of complex. But it won't be this complex. So like, don't freak out and get scared. Like, I'm not gonna come back. Like, don't, don't like, don't let Shaitan punk you, man. You know, if if we couldn't get like in the front row of our favorite artist, we'd still go. We'd sit in the box seats or like sit in the top, right? I mean, sometimes we need to be challenged. Sometimes we need to think. And those of you who regularly attend, you know, you can just like stop me. I don't believe in like cult of personality nonsense. Just say like, I don't understand what the heck you're saying right now, bro. Like, could you say it again? And alhamdulillah, uh, we're here to help each other. Also, I'm going to ask you questions a lot, so you need to interact. Don't be shy. Like, we've conditioned, especially I can speak on behalf of the Sunni community, we've somehow um, associated respect with silence, which is not healthy. But what we need to understand is, like, respect is found in trust, trusting places, rich conversations, Differences that are handled in a way which don't lead to like personal problems, right? We can differ as Martin Luther King Jr. said very beautifully without being disagreeable uh, So alhamdulillah, 
So he's talking to his student. His student requested him, like, I want to spend time alone, and, and I want to read this book. What I think is absolutely awesome about this is that, you know, a lot of times people get mad when you tell them, like, I don't want to study with you. I want to read this book. Ibn Josie doesn't say, like, man, how dare you disrespect me? You know, how dare you, like, read a book and not study with me? Like, he doesn't, you, you find that he really loves his students. You know, like I told my wife, like I love teaching these people on Tuesday and Thursdays, man. Like I enjoy spending time with them. Um, so you find like he doesn't have an ego in this. So he actually takes the time to abridge a four-volume work for his student. Man. And he says like, this is my humble thoughts. Like if you're going to read the book, here's my thoughts on the book. And mashallah, it became a book. So he says, if this is what you've decided to do, listifai haqqi al-haqqi min al-nafs, like you want to read this book so that you can like unravel the truth of your soul. He says, And if you want to like go with this, he says, So the first thing that you should think about is knowledge. Like you need to make what you rely on in this path sound knowledge. And, and when scholars used the word ilm years ago, the, the definition of knowledge is like kind of circular. It's, yani, it's like understanding something according to what it is, right? It's reality. The opposite would be ignorance. Uh, Imam al-Haramain, who's the teacher of Ghazali, Ghazali dies 505 after Hijri. Imam Haramain dies 479 after Hijri. Imam Like ignorance is to assume something, but it's not really what it is. Like fake news would be a great example, right? And, and shaitan, we know that his battle in the beginning with someone usually is either a battle of desires or a battle of knowledge. So, for example, with knowledge, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says to Adam, like, don't eat from the tree, and his wife, لا تقرب من هذه الشجرة, like, don't come close to it. Shaitan approaches Adam and says, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forbade you from eating this from this tree and takuna min al-malakaini aw takuna min al-khalidin because if you eat from it you're going to live forever become an angel so he redefines the reality of the tree so the battle here is what's called a tasawwur conceptualization so shaitan for many tries to deal with the battle of understanding and construction the second is the battle of the soul so oftentimes, like we like bad things, like we need to be honest as human beings, we tend to really like bad things. Like, you know, for lunch, because I was in Paris with my wife for our anniversary, so it was like baguettes and cheese for days. And I came back and went to the gym and I was like, oh, what have I done to myself, man? European M&Ms, man, like that stuff don't play, right? And then, you know, it's like kale, grilled chicken, avocado, and, and then, like, you walk by the koshri place, if you know it's, like, Egyptian pasta, and you're like, man, maybe just, like, one, sorry, just once, right? So there's always a, a battle between ourselves to stay away from things that may be forbidden or may not be good for us. So shaitan will come to us and, and try to entice us. And we'll talk about that in Surah Al-Jinn, um, into, like, justifying bad behavior through desires. So the battle of knowledge which is the battle of doubt, or the battle, if we're going to use a postmodern terminology, of constructions, how we see reality, how we see ourselves.
right? Or see things around us. And the number two is desires. So in, in trying to navigate that, when the scholars would use the word knowledge, what they meant in the sphere is Quran and Sunnah. So he says, like, if you're trying to take this path, if you're trying to be a secret to God and move to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and start to purify your soul, then you really have to be reliant on Al-Wahi, revelation. And that's very important. That, that theme is going to come like over and over and over and over and over again. And that's why like, it's really super important for each and every one of us to have like an intimate relationship with Quran. No scholar, no imam, no sheikh, just you, the book, sitting down. You have questions and you ask tech support. That's the job of a scholar and imam. But no one can like have that relationship for you. Right? وَكُنْ بَاحِثًا عَنْ دَاءٍ عَنْ دَفَاءٍ هَوَاهَا لَعَلَّكَ تَسْلَمٍ So he says there's two things that you need to really like, that we need to like really succeed in this process. The first is sound knowledge, right, exposure to sound knowledge because the outcome of knowledge is the creation of a culture, whether spiritually or physically. And the second thing he said is you have to bury your desires. And that's why I use the word defa'in, which means like to bury. And deal with and be aware of those things. Be aware of the things that move you. He says, then inshallah, you'll be successful. And he continues and he says something really awesome. He says, wahdar. And he said, be careful of being like two people, but I think we can add some other people to this now. He said, number one is someone who learns just to argue and just to like show that they know. He's talking about religious knowledge. And we know our beloved messenger, Muhammad, peace be upon him, said, you know, whoever <laughs> learns to argue with people and to impress the sufaha, the ignorant ones, فَنَّارَ النَّارَ like, let that person prepare for hell. We know the first person to be called to account in the hereafter is a scholar. And that's why the Prophet said, Al-Qur'an hujjatu lak aw alayk. Like, the Qur'an is for you or against you. Like, how you use it? So the first is like someone who learns for likes. Like, for the wrong reasons. Because knowledge should be about serving people. Like, worshipping Allah, serving people. Fame doesn't come into that. Fame is like salt on the food, or impressing people, or feeling that I'm better than other people. Al-Hasan al-Basri, he was like a great scholar. He used to say, like, I never leave a room until I feel I'm the most in need of Allah. Right? Then, then I'll, I'll exit. Um, and he said, that kind of person is someone who uses their knowledge to attain power for the wrong reason. Power can be good. We're going to talk about that later today. The second he said is someone who acts like they're a Sufi or acts like they're pious or like they're very spiritual. And this actually is interesting. He said, <laughs> He 
He said, or someone who's like trying to like act like they're away from this world. And they, they use their assumption, the delusion of their spiritual state to violate the sacred law. Like, so I'm like, I'm so good, I can trash people. I'm so good, I don't need to be observant of certain practices of faith or etiquettes or character. May Allah give us, you know, hidayah. And I think we can also add to this, like, or followers who are blind and don't ask questions and just like blindly follow people to the point where if those people tell them like, hey, you know, don't pray Fajr, okay. Or like, hey, slap your dad, okay. I, I've, unfortunately, I remember in Cairo, there was a person that came to me and said that his sheikh told him to divorce his wife. He's like, okay. I was like, man, you should divorce the sheikh, man. Like, they had like four kids. And this person actually thought he was drawing near to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When Sayyidina Muhammad said, Abghadu halali indallahi al-talaq. Like the most hated form of halal is divorce. And then like, just like, what are you doing to this young person? And I had a sister that came to me and said, same sheikh was not from here. Said like, he told me to divorce my husband, so I divorced my husband. I was like, how is this sheikh, man? Like, what sheikh is this? Right? Like, that's, that is not the outcome of knowledge. That's not, not the outcome of a seeker. Right? That's the outcome of someone either who's deluded, been, been abused spiritually. But at the end of the day, like, if you're a grown man, like 37 years old, there's only so many, or a grown woman, 42 years old, so only, to, only so many people you can blame. Like, for not using your mind. My teacher from Senegal... One of the things I loved about him, mashallah, out of many things, not just one, was he used to like trick me when I first started learning. So he would actually try to mess with me and say like the wrong thing. So I'd be like, you know, qala Allahu. He's like, la la, So I'd say, who is the subject? How is the object? So Allah said. So if it's a dhamma, it means Allah is the subject, right? Subhanahu wa ta'ala. So he'd say, no, 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 it's Allah. Allah is the object, right? And then I'd be like, yeah, yeah. And he's like, don't do that. I was wrong. He's like, you should correct me if I'm wrong. And he's like, I don't want people who don't think for themselves. Right? I want people that are able to like... And I know sometimes religion is intimidating. I've been there as a convert. I know it's like freaky. But still, you always have to listen to that voice inside you that says, I don't know, man. I don't think this is right. And then the fourth is, is someone who doesn't practice. It's just like is a monafikan. Like they just don't care. They have no concern. So their desires became their sheikh. Their nafs became their, their guide. So really four type of things we should be careful of. Right? Someone who learns and has understanding but uses it for the wrong reasons. Someone who's a blind follower, a fanatic, who forgets like the purpose is really to worship and serve. And we mentioned um, the other two. And he says, so my job in this book, and he says very beautifully, so udriju laka fi hadha kitabi insha'Allah ta'ala. I'm going to take you step by step through this book on the path to like really trying to heal yourself and then maintaining your soul. And that was why it's called ihya. The word ihya means to resuscitate. Ihya ulum al-din. So the resuscitation of faith. 
right? Bringing faith back into our lives and as a practice. And he divides the book into four parts. So that's the question, the first question I have for you. We can either go through all four parts, we can only go through two parts. If we go through all four parts, then that means we're going to go through acts of worship, like, you know, what are the subtle realities of salah, right? Not the fiqh, but the inner components of salah, the inner components of hajj, the inner components of charity, the inner components. Or we could do that when we study fiqh, because fiqh gets really dry in the future. Then the second part is on adat, habits. It's like marriage, friendship, um, your career, how you organize your time, uh, life kind of habits that, that uh, we run into in our lives, eating, drinking, um, and so on. And then the last two parts are dedicated to like the diseases of the heart and then the remedies of the heart. So what do you think he's going to start with? No, no, we'll get to that. Uh, in two weeks. Still the introduction, because the introduction is really, really important. There's a re reason why we're going to go through it. Um, even though it's going to be a little technical, but it's worth it, inshallah. Needs patience. But what do you think he starts? Imam Ghazali started with this, and he starts with it. Based on what he just said. Yeah, he starts with knowledge. For those of you that took our class last semester, Remember, what's the first obligation? Is to know. Is to learn. And again, it's, it's ironic that time and time again, and we're going to talk about Neil deGrasse Tyson, I think is his name later, and his approach towards Islamic history and Islamic knowledge. He says some things actually about Ghazali uh, that we'll try to, to respond to. Um, but it's ironic that you find people saying, like Islam, conveniently again, is the motherload of bad ideas because their own religious experiences, again, post-enlightenment, were with a very, uh, I would say, ferocious religious experience that was anti-intellect, right? Anti-science, anti-engagement. And Muslims impacted by certain things, especially post-colonial society, modernity, um, and then not having really the freedom in Muslim countries now to um, calibrate religion in a way that's healthy, we tend to adopt the dominant kind of attitude towards knowledge. And unfortunately, that usually is the evangelical approach. So our attitude towards science often are really shaped by the evangelicals. Um, especially when you look at like Harold Yahya's books, with all respect, like the colorful books, like, they're a disaster of science. But, like, it's basically regurgitating ministers from, like, Georgia and Tennessee. And their belief, like, there are no dinosaurs and, like, you know, global warming's not happening or whatever. Um, but it's interesting to note that most classical texts always begin with a chapter on knowledge. Kitab al-ilm. So, like, that right there empowers you, like, when you're dealing with people... And they're asking you questions, you could say, like, you know, majority of classical books always start with knowledge. Then also that should extend to reforming the Muslim society, the corrosiveness that's set in. When you meet kids that have come out of Islamic schools, and they're the ones that are the most quiet, man. Like, they're the ones that are, like, the most conformed, if you will. Perpetuating the ethos of silence, 
is counter to our religion. Our beloved messenger, alayhi salatu wasalam, said, the remedy for any sickness is to ask a question. Sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So when we talk about knowledge, he uses a really important word. He says, fi fadilatil ilmi. Wa ta'allumi wa ta'aleem. The word fadila, we'll talk about also again later. Fadila, we talked about it in Surah Al-Hujurat also. The word fadila means ziyada. Fadl is a ziyada. It's translated as like a blessing. Tafadl, right? But it actually means an, an increase in something. And the reason that he uses that word, and Al-Ghazali uses that word, is for a number of reasons that I hope I can I can capture for you. Number one is it's something that is acquired. You got to work for it. Fatila. So like six packs, a six pack ab. That's fatila. See what I'm trying to say? Straight eyebrows. That's a fatila. I'm just trying to help you understand it in that way. Looking sharp, right? That's fadila. Doing well in school, right? That's fadila. So when you hear the word fadila, it's synonymous with something muktasaba, something that you can earn. So there's wisdom in that. As if he's trying to say, like, something, you, you can do this. Like, you just gotta work hard for it. You have to be disciplined. You see that? trying to say here, excuse the examples, I'm just trying to like make it hit home for you. So he says, Fadila, that falls under two things. Number one is from Allah, a Fadila is a ni'mah, is a blessing. So that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Hujurat, we talked about it last semester, right? After he talks about the blessings of faith, then he says like faith was made beautiful to people. And disbelief was made abhorrent to people. He says, "What fadlam min Allahi wa ziyarat min Allah?" As a, a blessing that goes beyond normal things. So when you talk about the word fadl from God, it means a blessing, na'mah, an increase. When we use this word in the context of you and I, it means jihad. What I mean by jihad is like something that we work for, right? So, for example, like, you're going to get into that awesome graduate program. You have to make jihad for that, right? If you're going to be an amazing fashion designer, you have to work for that. If you're going to write something that's, like, really incredible, you know you kept running back to the Chicago menu of style like 25,000 freaking times, and you got Grammarly, Right? You work for it. So the point here is, he's saying, fi fadilat al-ilm, that knowledge is something that you and I have to work for. And the outcome is a blessing. So that word fadila actually encapsulates the entire concept of qadr and qada. Hard work and the outcome is with God. But in a simpler way, it means you can do this if you work hard, right? You can, you can, you can acquire it, inshallah. And that's why the approach towards fadila, the fadail, was always two things. 
encouraging people to do it and discouraging people from neglecting it. So, what's called targhib and tarhib. Like, encouraging people, like, you can do this, man, you got this. Like, my trainer, when I came back from France, he's like, yo, man, you can drop those 15, but you gotta do this. I was like, I don't want to. He's like, but, like, you'll feel better. Okay. So it's like, he's encouraging me. But then he's like, yo, I know you work at NYU, and those kids basically eat to die. So watch yourself, right? Tarheep. I'm like, no, they don't. They're like, all these veggie stuff all the time. Acai bowls, man. So Tarheep, Tarheep. When you understand this, this is not in the book. I'm, I'm trying to help you understand. So as we go through some of the things, you'll be able to see, oh, so that's why, like, the Prophet Ali, like, that's why he used this language. That's why the Quran is using this kind of language. It's trying to encourage me to achieve something greater. And that's why uh, we tell people that Islam is really helping about helping people in a faithful way, reach their maximum potential. Through the fada'il. This is so important that in the science of hadith, even weak hadith can be used that encourage people to achieve fadila. As long as they don't contradict like something else. So you'll have scholars who wrote books like Fadailul A'mal, right? The virtues of deeds to encourage people Right? to organize people as a community around good. So he mentions a number of verses, um, but we'll only mention a few, that talk about the virtues of knowledge. Allah says in the chapter called Mujadila, which is about, of course, this woman who argued with the Prophet for her family, for her marriage. It's just like an amazing chapter. Allah says that He will raise the people who believe and raise the people who know. So that's one of the fadls of knowledge, one of the blessings of knowledge. Another verse, Allah says very beautifully, وَمَا يَعْقِلُهَا إِلَّا الْعَالِمُونَ Like the only people that are really going to understand revelation are people who lend their intellect to it, who know, who invest their thoughts. The Prophet said that in the Mathal al Ulama'i fil Ardi Kamathal in the Jummi fi Sayyidina Muhammad said that the example of the learned in society is like the stars in the heavens. Like you just think about all of the kind of um, imagery that comes from that and the virtues of knowing and the virtues of learning. And then you have this really beautiful statement of Sayyidina Ali about the virtues of knowledge to Kumail ibn Ziyad, who's like one of his most famous students. So now, like, as you're reading the text, when you go back, if you read the Ihya by yourself in English, and you think about kind of this philosophy I gave you about virtues and, and acquiring the virtues, you're going to understand, oh, that's why they always start with like the benefits of doing it. They're trying to motivate me. They're trying to encourage me to find the capacity to work hard for something. Fadila. And again, that speaks to the greater message of Islam, helping people reach their capacity. It's very beautiful. And that's why Allah says about Sayyidina Muhammad, Ali, salatu wassalam, 
We sent you as a mercy. So Sayyidina Ali said, Ya Kumair ibn Ziyad al-Qulub aw'iyah. He said to him, like hearts are like vessels. فَخَيْرُهَا أَوْعَاهَا And the best hearts are those that belong to people who understand. People who invest in understanding. And it's hard, man, like, it's very difficult in times where everything's so fast to really take the time to think, man. Like on Instagram now, have you seen the ad? It's like 20 seconds to be calm. It has like that stream. It just makes me more nervous. How did I waste the 20 seconds? So it says, so Sayyidina Ali says, فَحْفَظْ عَنِّي The following things. He's like, remember the things I'm about to tell you. And this is like awesome, man. He says, النَّاسُ ثَلَاثَةً And Al-Ghazali mentions this also in his book. Rahimahullah. He said, people are really like three types of people. The first, عَالِمٌ رَبَّانِي Is a knowledgeable, godly person. A knowledgeable, godly person what he means by that is like and, and something very important that's going to come up later in this text is like don't go to an extreme like today like when you were at work and you tried to do something good that made you a godly person man it doesn't mean like people like oh they just don't have any mistakes they're just like so freaking awesome and they fly in the sky and like no it means like shaks rabbani like we could change it like a person's just trying to be like have that trajectory so it doesn't mean perfection. It means someone that cares about their spiritual tra- trajectory. That's Rabbani. And you find this idea over and over in the Quran. Because like I see kind of like in America now, like this battle between like activists and like spiritual people. I don't know what that means. I consider activism like the height of spirituality in many ways. But at the same time, our activism has to be rooted in principle. Or it's not really performing a divine service, right? At the same time, if our knowledge is not calibrating action, then our knowledge is hypocrisy. So, for example, in the fifth chapter of the Quran, when Sayyidina Musa is ordered to go, go into the Holy Land. There's like strong people in that city. We ain't trying to go in there, man. His father's like, nah, we're good. You go. You can handle it. We're going to sit here and chill. Then it says, Two people who feared Allah said, go in. So they have a spiritual trajectory, but they're active. So they weren't like, yeah, okay, alhamdulillah, let's just chill and be with God. Things will handle themselves. At the same time, they were like, let's go in. No, they have like awareness of God and they also have this active component. So one of my teachers, he's in jail now in Egypt. May Allah free him. There's now 60,000 people in prison in Egypt. I don't know if you're aware of this. He said to me like, look how two people who have knowledge, spirituality, and activism are stronger than a whole nation of people. Like two people are braver than a whole nation. al-bab. So 
Sayyidina Ali says, Alimun Rabbani. Like the first is someone who like knows, and then like they act on what they know, and they act in a way which is rooted in a holy, a holy trajectory towards Allah. Actions are by the intention. And somebody who's learning, and their intention for learning is to achieve salvation in the hereafter. It's like they're learning, and their goal is to like have salvation in the hereafter. So that's like someone that's a student. So the first is someone who's learned. Second is someone that's learned, a student. And here's this one. This is actually remarkable. He says, He said, the third is a rebellious person whose shepherds was popping. Who looks after what's ever popular for right at the moment. Right? Like wherever the wind blows, they go. So the idea is there's no foundation. Right? They just move, whatever is cool, alhamdulillah, whatever's like. That, that's what dictates. So that's someone that's like outsourced their identity, man. Right? They're not able to calibrate who they are, but they continue to like, create their identity based on what the world around them. And we all do that to a certain degree, right? But this person is doing it without a filter. So they become postmodernity, if you think about it, the absolute object. Everything around them is just creating who they are. Yes, sir? Who's the first type of person? A scholar who, like, their scholarship leads to, like, a traje spiritual trajectory. The second is someone who's, like, a student, who studies, trying to learn, in the hopes of achieving salvation in this life and the next. And the third is, is someone that has just constantly waiting to see like what's popular and that creates their identity without a strategy. Yeah. Have you defined modernity and postmodernity? I mean that's a long discussion. <laughs> modernity and postmodernity you could take a course. I don't think I can define it. I mean modernity is the absolute subject, Superman. Postmodernity is cable news. Cable cable TV. So you could be watching like Joel Osteen talk about Jesus, flip the channels, triple X porn. That's postmodernity. Like, there's no foundation anymore, and that's the absolute object. So now I'm just defined by what's around me. I have no purpose. So if the first was like a human-centered existence, now I don't exist. The existence is the world around me. But I'm not a philosopher, man. So you could maybe take a course here at NYU and uh, find out. But that's just a quick maybe way to look at it. So one gave us Superman, one gave us cable television. In the sense of like, there's, the foundations are gone. Not that cable television is bad, I'm just saying as an example, like you could watch Christian television or you could watch Zachary Nike and you flip the channel, it's like triple X. What the heck, like how'd that happen? Like, where am I going? Or whatever, right? World wrestling, and next thing you're watching a Peacemaker Summit. How does this happen? Like, you could watch like, there's no foundation to like ethics. And he said, that person is like moving with the wind. They, they're not able to see with the light of knowledge. And nor are they able to tie themselves to any strong foundation. Strong foundation. And then he says, uh, Sayyidina Ali said, knowledge is better than, than wealth. Because 
Knowledge will protect you, but you have to protect knowledge. And wealth, for example, especially those of you who are like Bitcoining right now, it's going to hit $900, man. Uh, they're saying people are freaking out. But wealth decreases as you spend it, but knowledge as you spend it, as you teach people, it increases, right? And then that takes us to like the next thing, because what he's trying to do is say, hey, here's like, here's how you see the virtues of knowledge. Like, look at these awesome texts. Like, what the Quran says about knowledge. Look what the Prophet said about knowledge. Now look at what someone like Sayyidina Adi said about knowledge. All that's to encourage you of the virtues of knowledge. Fadilatul ilm. To encourage us and to warn us to be negligent of it. But then Al Ghazali and Ibn Jawzi do something really awesome. He says, Shawahidul Aqliya. He's like, here's just some like logical arguments for knowledge. Right? So, gave you the text, Quran, Hadith, uh, statements of, of great people, and so on and so forth. He says, We either aratta ta'lama fadilat shay, fathama al fadila aslan. So if you want to know, like, if something's virtuous, then you should know what is virtue. In other words, you should know what the value prop is in something. Like, how does it really bring value to your life? And you should ask yourself that question. How does this thing bring value to my life? So he gives a few examples of ways that you could do this. And you could do this, like, in other aspects of your life. Like, I could do this in many different phases of my life. Not just here in this situation. He said the first one is like by comparing things. Because the word fadila doesn't just mean an increase, it means an increase to achieve maximum potential. So it's not a negative increase, it's not cancerous. It's something that brings about a good, what's called kamal, like yukmiluk, like it completes you. So the examples he gave, and this is a challenge whenever you go through a book like this with people, is like he gives like a donkey and a horse. It's like, you know, like, they're both the same, but, like, a horse looks better, it's faster, stronger, doesn't smell as bad. So he gives you the fadila of the horse. So I chose Boost Mobile and Verizon. <laughs> I've used both. So they're both carriers, you know what I'm saying? They both say 4G LTE, but they don't quite work the same. Right, that difference in between the two is fadila. So you could do anything in your life this way, actually, like to make major decisions. So he says, you know, al faras afdarum al himar. The horse is better than a donkey. And then he talks about why a horse is better than a donkey. You could take any comparison in your life. Two things that are similar, they have a shared kind of existence, but one is better than the other. What makes that better is the fadila. That's the fadila. Another example he gives, he gives it's um, pretty interesting, he said, is that you can divide things in your life into two. And that's what I like about what Ibn Jozi did. Ibn Jozi turned this to like a self-help manual, man. Because again, he's, he's trying to speak to the streets and speak to scholars at the same time, which is really not easy to do. So he said, He said, things like that you, you may think are awesome, you can, you can divide those into two. 
something which is, you need it because it is what it is. And something that you need that may cause you to achieve something greater. So it's not really needed within itself, but it's, it's like the process of getting where you're trying to go. So he said, for example, health. It's like health achieves both. Like health is something you need, because like you want to feel good, you want to live a nice life, but also if you're healthy, you can do other things. You can do other things. And he said, in, in this regard, for you as a Muslim, when you think about what's going to help you achieve something or what's valuable within itself is what's going to give you success in the hereafter. So that way we don't become like narcissistic people. So he said, Like what's going to help you achieve something else to have salvation in the hereafter? Or what within itself is going to bring about that salvation? So he says health is something that does both. And he said, the same with knowledge. Like, an example of what you don't really need to be successful in the hereafter is like reciting the Qur'an like Mashari Rashid. Like to have that awesome voice. That's awesome, but you don't have to have that within itself. It's great to have. So he said, knowledge helps you do both. Knowledge accomplishes things on its own that are valuable, and also it leads to greater things, usually. So he says, فَإِذَا نَظَرْتَ إِلَى الْعِلْمِ رَأَيْتُهُ مَطْلُوبًا لِذَاتِهِ So if you, like, if you look at knowledge, you see like it's, it's required in your life. Something that, it's an essential component of your life. وَوَصِيلَةً إِلَى تَحْصِيلِ الْمَنَافِعِ And it will also bring about other benefits for you. So it accomplishes both. So he says, whenever you're able to find something that's both of those things, like it's value within itself, and it also will lead you to greater things that are good for you, that's something you should value. That's the, the logic he's using here. Everybody understand what he's saying? Everybody with me? And that's why some ulama, like a shafi'i said, it's better to learn than pray at night. And al-Maqdisi said, if fasting during the day keeps you don't get crazy with this, keeps you from being able to study or work properly, then you shouldn't fast. If it keeps you from ilm, from knowledge. So it's interesting, uh, his logic. You don't have to agree with him. Again, we're not here to like accept everything he says, but it's kind of dope. He says, another way that you can think about the value of something is its fruit. Fi thamaratihi. And he's actually building on something that I think I talked to you about it before. Even though Josie comes early in Islamic history. And, and this approach of teaching something is going to become much more advanced. Especially when you had places in Damascus, Azhar, major universities established in the Muslim world. They begin to refine their curriculum. They have what's called Mabari al-Ulum. Right? These ten Mabari al-Ashara. Ten things that would encourage you to want to learn. One of them is like the fadila of it, like what are, what are the blessings of it. Number two is what is its fruit, thamaratihi, what he's talking about here. He's only mentioned a few, but o- over time this becomes much more advanced. The point is, he's trying to show you like, this is something you need. Like just think about it, lend your mind to it. 
So he said, like, the, the fruit of knowledge is obviously in life, you're going to get a job. He's like, he's, like, he's, like, really blunt about it. He's like, you're going to get paid. Potentially, like, you put yourself in a position, bi'ithnillah, with the blessings of Allah, to achieve agency financially, to enjoy a career, right? To, to find meaning in life through knowledge. Like, it's very important. And then, of course, in the hereafter, it's like, you know, if you practice what you know and you use it in the right way, religiously and otherwise, it will bring about benefit for you in the hereafter. Sadaqatun jariyah, for example. Like giving something to society that continually benefits them. And then he said, of course, in the hereafter, for example, knowledge فَقُرْبُ min Allah, it's going to bring you closer to God. It's a means to be nearer Allah's rahmah. وَنَيْلُ السَّعَادَةَ To achieve eternal bliss, he mentions. But then he says something that's dope. And this is what Ibn Jawzi does that Ghazali didn't do. Which is really awesome. He said, He said, so knowledge is going to bring about benefits in this life and the hereafter. And the hereafter will not be organized unless this life is organized. Imam Ibn Taymiyyah said, nobody will live in Jannah unless they live in Jannah in the dunya. What he meant is, spiritually of course, but also like organization. So he says, Right? In Egypt they say, You know, like, the, the, the dunya is like a bridge to the hereafter. So he said, because of that, he says, you should see, and you want to write this down. He says, Which means, that the, the worldly life is, the, is like the farm for the hereafter, what you're going to cultivate in the hereafter. It's a very beautiful word, a very beautiful statement. Because when you think about zira'a, right, farming, you think about responsibility. You think about a lot of stuff. So we can't like eschew our worldly responsibilities in the name of Al-Akhirah. That's why Sayyidah Aisha said that those three guys that came to the Prophet mm-hmm. and they were like, tell us about the Prophet's worship. And then when she told them, one of them was like, I'm never going to sleep again. The other was like, I'm never going to get married. Like, I'm going to fast for the rest of my life. And when the Prophet heard about it, he ran to them. He's like, listen, I'm married. I sleep and I eat. Like, chill. Right? And whoever turns away from my sunnah is not from me. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. It's like very beautiful. Mazra'a is a farm. What you cultivate. And this is really interesting. This is what makes Imam Ibn Jawzi mad G status. Mad baller shot collar amongst ulama. Because he does something that may actually surprise you. He says, so based on that, if we see that knowledge is key, to achieving success in this life and the next, and that this life, if it's organized and set aright, inshallah, and used properly, will bring about a harvest in the hereafter. He said, then you have to think about four 
foundational knowledges that help life run properly. And my activist brothers and sisters are going to love this. And this is where he differs with Al-Ghazali. Al-Ghazali was influenced greatly by Plato. And he had a Platonic outlook on things. Um, so at times you find, with respect to him, almost... Although his followers were all the teachers of Salahuddin Ayyubi, Nuruddin Zemqi comes out of the madrasas of Ghazali students who teach him, then he becomes a catalyst for Salahuddin. We know Salahuddin handled business. So, you know, take this kind of in the middle. Imam Ibn Jawzi said that the world as we know it is organized around four fundamental sciences to help us organize for the hereafter. He says, for example, number one is farming. Keep in mind, he lived in a pre-industrial age. And pay attention, I'm about to ask you guys a tough question. That's like people can live, like there's nutrition, there's food, people have access to basic um, nutrition. Which would be like, you know, in those days, like textiles, clothes, things you need to cover yourself, wear, clothing, architecture, to create structures for people in society, and politics. Yes? Um, I'm just a little confused about what you said about the hereafter will not be organized unless this life is organized. Wouldn't that suggest that no, what he means is like, you know, for example, if there was no law, everybody's murdering each other, it'd be hard to get to the hereafter. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like if we weren't taking care of people, making sure, for example, now food stamps are going to be turned into blue ribbon. Um, stuff like that, right? So he means like the affairs of people should be organized in a way that facilitates a, a, a relationship with God. Individually? And society. See, see what he's saying now? Awesome question. That's a great question. So, again, Ibn Josie, in his time, this is 600 years after Sayyidina Muhammad, وسلم, is saying life really functions, the organization of dunya functions on knowledge of really four things, right? Number one is food, right? Farming, uh, you name it. Number two, textiles, clothing, making sure people are, t like, they have. Proper clothing, man. Access to clothing. Number three, architecture. Number four, politics. What would you say the four are now? Oh, snap. Here we go. Everybody's like, huh? Well, politics is still on the left. Right, politics doesn't change. You're right about that. All right, so how many agree politics? All right, good. Better. I was joking. <laughs> Huh? Social capital. Social capital meaning? You asked me to define Mardani and post Mardani, bro. <laughs> no, it's good. Uh, no, 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 yeah, I understand. Um, I think now you're not just who you are outside of the, the realm of sort of like uh, your Your 
your social community, right? So mm. whether that be your local community that you interact with on a day-to-day or whether it be your Facebook community or your Instagram community. Got it. Your social capital. Mm. Okay. What the more I think about it, the more mm. I don't actually think that's That's all good. It could be an outcome or something. Yes, brother. Hold on. Any sisters? Yes, brother. Say James. Uh, finances, financial industry. Yes, Uncle G. Was the Khilafat and the politics is it was is it the same parallel or that? Yeah, but in, we'll talk in the future. Inshallah, we have this class on kind of contemporary Islamic issues. One thing we'll talk about is Khilafat. Was Khilafat fardain or was a government fardain? It's like a discussion amongst people. Because you could call something khilafah, it could be a disaster, right? It could be call you call what you want to call it. But the politics is, is different. Politics is, is there. Yes, ma'am. I'd say industrialism. Because I think that kind of fits the other three under it. Because we've industrialized farming, we've industrialized making clothes, and then you've also even industrialized the way we built things. Like, mm-hmm. if you think of things like um, Levittown, where you have just a mass production of houses. So just our outlook on let's the utilitarianism, let's find the fastest, easiest way to do that. Right. Science too. So those are good. Anything else? Yes, sir. The arts. The arts. Yeah, liberal arts, man. Calm the hearts, keep people from freaking out. Like losing their minds. Yes, sir. Related to science, technology. Technology. I mean if you think about major departments of world governments, you could like put them under these categories, right? Environment, education. Yes, are you scratching your eyebrow? Mm-hmm. All right, don't do that. <laughs> Freak me out. I'm just joking. It's good to see you back. Yes, ma'am. I have a question. Yeah, because Ibn Josie lived almost over a thousand years ago, right? So his his reading of certain components of the world may or may not be applicable today. So I'm just challenging people to think about that. Yeah, he meant he meant how these could be used for good, right? So, yeah, I got you though. Either way, right? But what will determine if the, that's a good question? That's a good segue. What will determine if those things are used for good or bad? Like, what makes the ultimate decision in how those things will be employed? Hmm. Mm-mm. Who determines how the economy is going to work? How it's going to be used, who's going to get their food stamps cut, you know, who's going to be gentrified, who's going to lose their their Medicaid, their Medicare. Politics. Politics. More or less. I mean, communities have also a massive responsibility. Modern Modernity turns the state into God, so that's a problem. But more or less. Good, that's an awesome point, man. Alhamdulillah, thank you. Anyone else? Four fundamental or more than four fundamental sciences that or knowledges that help us be in tilamid dunya to organize the world so that we can be successful in the hereafter, right? And what's cool about the way he phrases this, he's saying like, these are potentials that can be used for great good. You know, that was his outlook. Yes, sir. I would say information slash media. 
yeah, information to media. Anyone see the hearings today and like um, how media impacts people's images and what they may vote for, what they may not vote for? Yes, sir. Medicine. Medicine. Access to medicine, healthcare. How come um, information or academia isn't on this original four list since we are in the section on knowledge? He, his idea is that knowledge surrounds all that. Okay. You got to learn those things. So he's like, these are enveloped yeah. in knowledge, mm -hmm. right? That's a good question, though. So these are like the outcomes of knowledge. So check out what he says. It's kind of interesting. This is very non-Ghazali with respect to Imam al-Ghazali. He said, well, I'll get to it. He said, like the world can't function without these foundational things. Knowing, having knowledge of these foundational things and how they work. Again, that may change, especially now with Palo Alto. Like there's a whole different perspective of knowledge in today's world. Then he says, so these things are like the body. And these four things he said, are like the head, the heart, the liver. Like, if one of them is missing or dysfunctional, then the dunya becomes dysfunctional. And he said, but there's other things that are like, you know, a fingernail. You might die without it, but not really. Right? Balding. You might lose your mind over it, but like, you're still functioning. But he's, he argues these are four things for his time that have to exist for the world to be organized, for the akhirah to be organized. I think this is a great discussion to have with people, man, in the contemporary context. What are the things that we have to have? Not only to benefit the people around us in the world that we live in, but according to his logic, to be successful in the hereafter. It's very beautiful, man. It's very powerful. So then he says, وَأَشْرَفُ هَذِهِ الْأُصُولِ said the most important and most honorable out of those four foundational things which he theorizes are you know the main organs of the dunya he said like the most important and most honorable out of those four worldly oriented things that help us organize our world is politics because with politics, insha'Allah, if it's used properly, right, and it's sincerely, it helps, it helps organize and establish the world in a good way. Yes, ma'am. Um, can you just, like, for the sake of this discussion, like, define politics, what it means in this context? Yeah, he means, like, again, what rules society, what determines the laws and functionality of society. That's what he means by siyasa, politics. Can you repeat the reason why? Yeah, he said, because sababul islah al-umuri, because politics is a means to rectify the affairs of people. And to make sure that it stays upright, like laws, rules, norms. And then he does something where I have to hurry because of time. Wow, time flew quickly. He divides knowledge into different things. So, for example, there's aspects of knowledge which are commendable within themselves, like the knowledge of Allah. 
knowledge of faith, knowledge of the prophets, knowledge of the heart, knowledge of practice and worship. Then there are aspects of knowledge which are what's called ilm wa'ala, tools, like learning Arabic. You don't have to learn Arabic to go to Jannah, but it's like a tool that's going to help you improve your relationship with faith. And that takes us to like where we'll, we'll try to finish up quickly. I'm sorry, I said today will be a little bit more technical. Don't worry, like it won't be like this after we finish this part. But this is important because what Ibn Jozi's done and Al-Ghazali's done has opened up your mind to the theories of education in Islamic history. Their approach towards education. And this is important to know, especially when you encounter an example I'm going to give you in a second. Then he gives like a few more verses about the virtues of seeking knowledge, some hadith about the virtues of seeking knowledge, learning, being a teacher, being a student. Like for example, once the prophet walked into a mosque, he saw people making dhikr, he saw people learning, he sat with the people who were learning. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The last part, he talks about the designations of knowledge. And this is going to lead into why the purification of the heart becomes crucial and important. Our scholars divide knowledge based on relief four or five things. The first is what's called mahmud and madhmum, commendable. And Imam Ghazali did this brilliantly. What's commendable and what is seen as abhorrent. Number two is what is an obligation individually or a communal obligation. Fardain or fard kifaya. And we'll just go through those. So the first is our scholars traditionally and even till now, they employed a meta logic to look at the world. And that meta logic was rooted in harm and benefit. What's harmful in general is considered disliked or completely abhorrent. So for example, you find Iran, I believe in 1980, there was a fatwa that came from some of the religious leaders of Iran that said nuclear weapons are forbidden. Why? Because they're harmful. Just, I'm just giving you an example. In Indonesia, there was a fatwa against burning lumber, right, five or six years ago. Why? Because it's contributing to global warming. So it's like harmful. So at a metalogic level, oftentimes scholars are approaching issues that are not found in text from the point of harm and benefit. Physical harm and spiritual harm. Al-Ghazali, Neil deGrasse Tyson, right? He gave a lecture, and because he failed to understand this metalogic, he blames Al-Ghazali for the downfall of science in the Muslim world. That's not supported by the historical record, by the way. I don't know how he made this mistake. We all make mistakes. It happens. Because Al-Ghazali, in some of his texts, talks about the danger of math. But if you look at the context, he's not talking about math as math. He's talking about math as it was employed by like sorcerers, like what we, not astronomers as we understand them now. What we would understand now to be like uh, zodiac sign stuff and stuff like this. 
Yeah, astrology. Not astronomy. And that's why in other texts, Ghazali, he, he says like math is something you should learn. In Azhar, math was like a requirement, advanced mathematics, because before, you know, how did you know the calendar? Right? You had to be able to look in the sky. So he failed to understand what Ghazali was talking about are, are aspects of science which could become harmful potentially. And that's where his concern was. Because some of the greatest observatories in the Muslim world were built two, three, four hundred, five hundred years after Ghazali, rahimahullah. It's important for you to know this because sometimes you're going to hear people sit, talking out the side of the mouth, excuse my language, but they're not able to understand the meta kind of discussion or approach that Islam and Muslim scholars are using lenses to look at things. And one of the most consistent lenses to look at anything is harm and benefit. Because the Prophet said, لا ضرر في الإسلام There's no harm in Islam. There's an axiom in Islamic law, we'll talk about it on Wednesdays in tandem. Harm should be removed. So, I'll give you an example. They would say, knowledge which is not commendable is knowledge which leads to harm. So now the fatwa about nuclear weapons. Like really, like what's the ultimate outcome of unleashing nuclear weapons on anybody? It's like mass killing. Knowledge which is commendable is knowledge that brings a benefit, physical, spiritual, um, communal benefit, as long as it doesn't sacrifice principles, religious principles, is generally considered commendable. Where did it get this from? From a broader ethos found in Islamic texts that we say, Jabba Musalih wa Dar al Mafasid, to bring benefit and prevent harm. And if you understand these two axioms, we'll talk about them in the future, inshallah, on Wednesdays, every other week in tandem, but long ways down the road. These axioms are brilliantly applied by the Prophet and scholars, fuqaha, ulama, until recent years. It's not fair to expect Muslim scholars from Muslim world, the Muslim world to be able to contribute at a high level now when they're dealing with people like Sisi, man. It's just not fair, man. Like, I get I'm really upset when people, like, try to, like, oh, man, these scholars, man, I was in Egypt my first year in Azhar, my freshman year. We had more than 1,000 students. The second year, we had 300. At least a third of them were in prison, man. These were teenagers. Like, to live under that kind of pressure and then to be expected to, like, calibrate solutions for the world, like, it's not fair, man. Like, Syria. There's the greatest ulama in the world in Syria, like, in Syria now, you ain't like, oh, let me write this book of tafsir. No, it's like, I need to eat. If you're in Palestine, like, you know, I had to me, me, Allah, free her. You know, you're not in a situation where you're going to be able to calibrate solutions because you got immediate stress. Like, so that's why I get upset sometimes. We don't give people, like, a break. But it's not easy. I tell brothers, when you enter America and the TSA calls you over, write a book of tafsir. When you're sitting in secondary, oh, awesome, it's Got this awesome inspiration. You write down this tafsir right now. Imagine like being physically punished, your children, your parents, your family, your houses. You know, we need to like be merciful. Uh, but harmful knowledge is knowledge which can create tremendous harm. And the Prophet that's why we find he lets the guy urinate in the mosque, man. To 
to guard harm. Right? When he comes into Mecca and doesn't order the Kaaba to be rebuilt. Because those people just became Muslim. This is an iconic building. I'm not going to destroy this now. I'm not going to ask this to be destroyed. Yura'i al-Darar. He looks after harm. When you find Izzedin Abdul Salam, 5th century genius, in his book on politics, and he says, you know, if you have only the choice to, to vote between an evil person or someone who's less evil, the less evil person is good. His philosophy is looking after the greater harm, and a greater harm becomes, a lesser harm becomes good, so on and so forth. This is a philosophy you find. Degrassi, when he went after Ghazali, he didn't understand that Ghazali's approach, his ethos is protecting people from potential harm. He didn't mean math is forbidden, science is evil. He meant if certain ways it's employed to harm others, right, or to disrupt civil society, I have a problem with this. And that's what he was saying. Uh, rahimahullah. As for the knowledge of Sharia and Islam in general, it's considered beneficial. So we talk about knowledge which potentially is not beneficial, we're talking about worldly knowledge. Like worldly knowledge. Like how to build anthrax. Like why? <laughs> like what are you going to do with it? Like kill rats? Like you're not. Like potentially could kill people. The other, and we'll stop here because of time, sorry, is knowledge which is an individual obligation and knowledge which is a communal obligation. The individual obligations we went through last semester in the introduction to our book. Communal obligations are those things for example, like building Islamic schools, making sure like people have access to, to learning, uh, scholarship funds in this country for Muslims to go to universities. All that falls under fard kifaya. So fard is it's on me. I have to learn. Fard kifaya is how we organize as a community around things which are crucial to our existence. And that takes us really to the last point. He talks about a number of things, but because of time, we have to hurry. He said, you know, why is it that people neglect, like, foundational knowledge, and they tend to, like, go for things like arguing, debates, useless rambling, uh, and so on and so forth. He talks about that. And then he talks about how the definitions of terms have changed in the 5th century. And that's something we need to appreciate here. We'll talk about that next time. And then the last thing he says, one of the important puzzles of knowledge, pieces of knowledge that people neglect, is the knowledge of what's called ilmu mu'amala, the knowledge of the heart, how the heart acts. So the whole introduction, the virtues of knowledge, the different types of knowledge, designations of knowledge, the importance of knowledge, why people neglect knowledge, blah, 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 blah. Then he says, this book is about your heart. And most people neglect that because it demands responsibility and accountability, and people hate that. People don't like to be accountable, man. They like to outsource things, they like to blame others. So because of that, this book is going to focus on what's called ilmu mu'amala. And it's going to, we're gonna focus on two parts of it. The destructive qualities of the soul, and the qualities which are redeeming, can bring about the salvation of the soul. And how to 
acquire them and how to make them a habit and how to be aware of them. Of course, because Allah says, قَدْ أَفْلَحَ مَنْ زَكَاهَ Right? Successful is the one who purifies the heart. So, quickly. We went way over time, I apologize. Uh, Imam al-Ghazali and Ibn al-Jawzi wrote these books to refocus people on the importance of the heart, the inner qualities of worship, not just the outer, because they live in a time of shine. They live in a time of existentialism in many ways. They live in a time of, of, of making it rain and looking good. So they're worried about the Muslim community and they're saying, listen, don't forget the foundation is this and this is an obligation because they lived in a time where people were jockeying for their madhab superiority. Baghdad, the Hanbalis and Shafis almost killed themselves. The Hanabila, the, the Maliki's like, we're out, we're going to Spain, peace out, it's been real. We're not fighters. The Hanafis went to Khurasan, then later on they ended up in Pakistan and India and Turkey and the Levant. A lot of stuff happened at that time. People were, were so adamantly concerned about the outer that they began to fight each other and harm each other. There were riots in Baghdad. It was ugly. So Ghazali comes on the cusp of this. Ibn Jozi comes on the cusp of this. And they said, man, don't forget what all this is about. So then they go back to reformatting the understanding of knowledge, that it's not just a cognitive enterprise, but that information is for transformation and to live for a higher purpose. And then information is designated as a virtue. That means you got to work for it and acquire it. It's a blessing from God. And then it's divided into these different categories that we talked about. And then at the end, Al-Ghazali as well as Ibn Jawzi say, one of the neglected fardul ayn, individual obligations that people forgot about is purification of the heart. Ihsan, to worship Allah as though you see Him. In order to organize it, Al-Ghazali does something brilliant, and that is he gives these, out of all four chapters, each chapter has 10 parts, so it's 40 total. So we're gonna take two chapters, the chapter on the destructive qualities, and then the redeeming qualities, and each one there's 10 components to it. And talk about how to work on the soul. But tonight is very important to go through this introduction for a lot of reasons, right? I, I apologize if it was a little slow or boring or uh, technical for you. But I want you to be able to appreciate where he's coming from with all this, and then how you find similarities in the world around you right now. Especially when people talk about Islam as experts, completely oblivious to the trajectory of our history and how we are where we are and how we look at the world. It's very different than other people. So I gave the example of, for example, blaming Ghazali for the fall of science is not true. The fall of science is largely, anyways, talk about that another time. But if you look at what Muslim lands have gone through, man, you can't divorce Islamophobia from the colonial experience. That's impossible, right? You can't divorce the challenges in the Muslim world from being colonized and brutalized, right? And having their lands uh, taken from them and cut up into pieces and destroyed. Like, that's gonna have an impact on people. So we'll stop here. If you have any questions, we can take a few minutes for questions. If not, next week we'll start with arrogance. That's the first thing he talks about, is arrogance and narcissism as a destructive quality. وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم